Welcome to another episode of Talking to Change, a motivational interviewing podcast. My name is Sebastian Kaplan, and I'm based in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Glenn Hines from Derry, Northern Ireland. Hello, Glenn. Hello, Seb. Hi, everybody. So today, we've had a great conversation already with our friend and colleague, Denise Ernst, to talk about coding and treatment fidelity measurements, and in particular, an instrument called the MIDI, which we'll get into more detail. So hopefully you'll find it interesting and also helpful on a practical level. Uh, Before we do that, though, Glenn, um, how about you let people know how they can contact us? As always, you can contact us on Twitter at Change Talking, on Instagram, it's Talking to Change Podcast, Facebook, it's Talking to Change, and email address is podcast at glennhines.com. Right. So, uh, well, we we're obviously have been doing this piece before the actual interview, us offering some reflections on the conversation that we just had. So, Glenn, how about you? What, what are a couple of things that stood out to you? Immediately, what struck me was the fact that, you know, as we listened to Denise's origins and her practice of MI, that it, it was all about her being curious about what what was best practice. And that has informed her whole journey to the point where she's telling us today that she's planning to retire. But she's had a lifetime of training, of coding, all of it being informed by her desire to work out what's right and what's useful. And that has led to the development of the coding instrument that we're talking about today, the Mighty, that really important to recognize that anyone who's interested in motivation interviewing or practice motivation interviewing is richer because of the work that Denise has been part of and the work that Denise has done. So that in itself was, was wonderful for us to be joined by Denise, just to hear about that history and about the development of what many of us now recognize as the day-to-day tools of motivation interviewing, but also the importance that she reiterated of the understanding and then the being purposeful in the way we respond to client language the way we do, particularly given the research that highlights whatever it is, whatever type of client language has a direct impact on the immediate and long-term influence on their behavior after the sessions. So that's really, really helpful to hear today as well. A nice reminder, I guess, or re-review on, uh, on client language and the importance of that as it, as it fits with MI. And I mean, yeah, it's when we think about the key people in MI around the world, really, I mean, there's some people that come to mind, certainly, Bill Miller and Steve Rolnick, obviously being to foremost. Denise, along with her colleagues, Jane Manuel and Terry Moyers, as the developers of this instrument, the Mighty, really are about as influential as one can be, given how much that coding mechanism has become a part of a research practice and subsequent development of a mm. method. For me, listening to her describe the motivational interviewing treatment integrity code, or the Mighty as we call it, how the Mighty evolved over the years and sort of the bi-directional relationship, I guess, between the mighty informing how research gets done and research practice, and then 
vice versa, how much research on motivational interviewing helped inform things that Denise and her colleagues included in the Mighty to then be able to track in terms of clinicians' skill. And so that, that was really interesting to hear that, how it kind of goes in both directions. Another thing we got into a bit was the use of the Mighty as an educational tool. And in particular, not necessarily the Mighty itself, but coding one's own practice. So as a practitioner, if you were to record yourself, well, how would you hear yourself in a session in a way that would help inform your learning? And, you know, we discussed a bit about how you can optimize that, I guess. You know, what what in particular would you be listening for and how you can note that and track that? So those are a couple of the things that really stood out to me. So let's listen to the episode. Hello, Denise. Welcome to our podcast. It's great to have you with us today. If you could start, as we often do, just we'd love to hear a bit about your background and what we often call the early MI story. So uh, how did you get into all this? Thank you, Sebastian. And it is really a pleasure to be here. I've enjoyed listening to your podcasts over the years and I'm delighted to be invited. My journey with motivational interviewing started over 30 years ago. I was trained as a trainer 30 years ago, but it started in practice and in research. Motivational interviewing has really been my driving professional goal. It has been what I have worked my entire career for and studied for, and it's been a really important part of my professional and personal journey actually, in growth and development. And I will say, because we're going to be talking about coding, that I have been coding for 25 years and been involved in the development of the coding tools. That has been an important part of my MI journey as well, of my understanding of motivational interviewing. And I'm really happy to be here to talk about that. Yeah, so you've been around MI for quite some time and from its early origins. And I guess... One of the things we can, I want to immediately be curious about, Denise, is having discovered it, why did you stick around? What was it about MI that was so appealing for you? When I started, so Bill Miller, the first book was out, but Bill was a consultant on a research project that I worked on here in Portland at the Center for Health Research. It was the first study in primary care of motivational interviewing with a brief intervention in primary care on alcohol use. And I was the person responsible for the interventionists that we had. There was no training. You couldn't get training in motivational interviewing. So our investigator that was leading the study, we organized a study group and we went through the book. We went through the exercises. We went through the skills. We practiced. We did everything there and with sort of Bill giving us guidance from afar. But what I will say is that from the very get-go, this pulled me. It was a landing for me. It really felt like home. And I know that the basis of that is the client-centered, humanistic, underlying belief. And it just gelled with me. And I had other kinds of training too. So the more technical components, which were a part of it, even from the beginning, were important. But it really was, you know, the Carl Rogers basis that grabbed me and pulled me along to start with. It is interesting to hear about those days before you could just hop online and find a thousand trainers worldwide. I mean, this is clinical research, 
you read a book, you dig into it and unpack all the important elements and then out comes an intervention. I guess I'm just wondering too, maybe this is more historical curiosity, but you were saying 30 years ago, and you were talking about an intervention around alcohol use, granted in primary care, but still like, how did you find at that time, am I as this contrast to conversations around alcohol and drug use that were probably quite different, even in primary care settings, I imagine those conversations went quite differently. I guess, just how did you find the use or the introduction of this method that was so based in the you know, humanistic psychology and client-centeredness? That's a really interesting thing because the lead interventionist that I had and at the Center for Health Research, we had a centralized intervention, basically behavioral intervention department. The people that were there were trained in a variety of different professions, but they worked on different research projects. We had a lot of research projects going and they worked on different different ones doing different things. The lead interventionist on that was a counselor, but he was also in recovery. And motivational interviewing was really, really hard for him. It was really a struggle because of where he'd come from in this sort of treatment of substance use world. And that made for a really interesting, I think it made for a deeper dive into it immediately. And the discussions around how is this different? How are we focusing the process differently? Or what does this mean? So when I think back to working with him as part of that team of working through it, it sort of prompted a deeper dive right from the beginning and a recognition about how this was really different and how those conversations were different. And I will say that, you know, that research project on alcohol use was really the only one on substance use that we did. We were doing all kinds of hypertension prevention and all kinds of other research studies working on different kinds of behaviors that brought up different issues related to changes from the more medical model to the motivational interviewing model. They brought up a lot of different things. But that one on alcohol, it was, you know, I hadn't thought about that, but it really did push us deeper into the differences. That was interesting to hear that someone with a traditional lived experience and treatment offering experience was invited to look at what it was they were doing from a slightly different angle. It wasn't such a much of a shift for yourself, but it was for this individual. And it sounds like he witnessed something there that enabled him to continue doing what he was doing, which was to remain helpful. And I guess yes. that was that was his motivation was how does me change and how I do what I do improve the outcomes for the people I'm trying to help. And it sounds like for him, he witnessed enough in the, those early days for him to begin to pivot. And it sounds like where you were was a really fertile place for the development and nurturing of motivational viewing in the early days. It really was. There were two of us trained in the first training for trainers in 93. And then I had two more trained in the next year and two more the next year. So that as we built up to the development of Mint, because this was all before Mint was around, but the Motivational Interviewing Network of Trainers <laughs> was around, that we had, we were really building capacity. And 
pushing the limits with very little to work on, really, pushing the limits of where you could use this and what kinds of context you could use it. So from the beginning, we were also really pushing because, like I said, we weren't involved mostly in substance use at all. We were looking at a lot of different kinds of, we did do some in smoking, but mostly we were working with health behaviors related to chronic disease. And we pushed the limits working. We were working with adolescents and trying out different things and different tools. In addition to that, it was pretty fortuitous because Bill Miller, again, did a sabbatical. I think it was 97. He did a sabbatical with us in at the Center for Health Research, which was where the motivational interviewing skill code, the first of the coding tools was developed. And it was developed in support of a project that he was working on during his sabbatical, looking at the effectiveness of training. When you go in and train and looking at how can you measure if people actually gain skill. And we were in the position, those of us, by this time, there were six of us who had been trained as trainers, and we were all involved in protocol development, and we were all involved in the development of the MIST. I just happened to be in the right place at the right time in the early beginning days of that. Of course, I'm extremely grateful for that, but it is true. It was the early days of expansion. You started to maybe address an answer to this next question of mine here, which is, I guess, about coding, fidelity measurements, maybe another term, maybe there's a better term, like sort of in the field, but just about coding in general. And if we can start to get into the specifics around MI coding, but even broader than that, like, what would you say are some of the important things about coding, be it for research purposes, teaching purposes, clinical purposes, however you might want to answer it, but why coding? Why should anyone care about coding? I think part of the answer to that for me lies in the development of that first tool, which was designed to measure whether or not people were gaining skills from training and whether or not you could measure their skill level from pre-training to post-training. So we had samples that we were working on that we measured, we monitored to see if you could do that. And when we started the coding system, that first one, there are lots of other coding systems and that we drew from former coding systems that had been used, including Carl Rogers students, but we drew from other places the kinds of measurements that were used to do that, to test whether or not, we were using it to test whether or not trainees gain skills, but they had also been used previously to look at whether or not the skills of the clinicians made a difference to the outcome or the interaction, even during the interaction. So there was some other measures out there that had been used in research, primarily in research purposes. Although Carl Rogers students, uh, Truax and Karkov had developed measures that were also aimed at training therapists. They developed the measures and that's where the empathy measure primarily started was they developed measures to help clinicians learn about what to pay attention to in the sessions with their clients. And they were looking at, they had lots of measurement, they did lots of research and they had measures and looking at things like symptom reduction in clients with pretty significant mental illness. They were looking at a variety of different kinds of outcomes at that point too. So when we started the MI coding system, we basically went for the universe of what we thought might be important based on all that had come previously, on all the work that everything that was in the book, on all the, I mean, we had, we developed so many things 
we had like 14 global measures. We had a lot of different stuff, but we were looking at the universe of things like what can you impact with training really? And it was a pretty cumbersome. We developed a tool that was pretty cumbersome. It took three passes. I mean, you had to listen and code three times in order to measure all the things we were trying to measure. But again, it was a test of what's the limits of what can we measure? What can we measure reliably? And what can we look for? And we were able to find some results of skill change based on the coding in that study. And so then that the MISC itself is still around and is used for a variety of different things, but it is because it is more cumbersome and takes more effort, it isn't as useful for something like treatment fidelity or for coaching purposes. It's very resource intensive to do. So then the notion of we need to have ways of actually measuring treatment fidelity so that you can actually document because in the research at this particular time, people could say we did motivational interviewing. This is what we did, but you had no idea what they really did. And they didn't necessarily say what kind of training they had or, you know, like you were saying earlier, we read the book and we practiced and we built a protocol, you know, it doesn't really say whether or not motivational interviewing actually happened. So the the move towards treatment fidelity, and I will say that during that time too, one of the research projects that we were involved in that was a motivational interviewing project, it was more like a motivational enhancement therapy project, which includes motivational interviewing and feedback. We had a project going at the Center for Health Research with firefighters, and it was a health behavior intervention. And that research project was also part of a national collaboration to develop best practices for behavior change research. And we utilized the coding. We coded those, all of those 200 sessions. We coded them as a way of managing treatment fidelity, but also as a way of informing best practices for people reporting on treatment fidelity for developing their treatment fidelity measures, looking at the importance of when you report something that you need to be able to give some evidence that that it's actually what you did. So it became part of a larger, even larger group of both research and effort at the treatment fidelity. Now, the main tool for the treatment fidelity, the development of the motivational interviewing treatment integrity code, which is what we're, you know, use mostly today came from the need to have a more quick and dirty way of measuring whether or not motivational interviewing was happening. It was developed using all the data we'd gotten from the MISC and collapsing it and statistically analyzing it until we came up with a group of variables that you could measure reliably that would tell the story in a sort of easier way. And that didn't require three times of listening that you could do it once. It was a clear line from the MISC to the MIDI. And that was primarily used for treatment fidelity. So that was the purpose of it starting. And it has exploded in terms of usage. Now that was where it's initiated. It's consistent with the approach that you were taking with just the exploration of MI across different disciplines and different programs of care. At the beginning, you went, okay, and you cast net wide to see what came back in. And each time you cast it out, it informed and influenced 
what you did next that has now over the years of evolution has brought you to the MID, the Motivation of Treatment Integrity Coding, that a lot of people who are MI practitioners will be much more familiar with. And that's part of what we're really curious to explore with you today. And it sounds like, again, it's reinforcing that the purpose of coding, whether it's MI or any other approach, that it's to inform best practice. And it sounds like Mm -hmm. that in itself is something that can be of use for anyone that's listening today, that the idea of allowing yourself to record and have someone with coding experience to listen to the tape and then to offer you feedback is potentially the best way of helping you learn whatever approach that is you're trying to do. To have coaching, to have support and to have someone listen to your practice. I know that for most of us, and I know myself that I trained as a social worker first, that idea of recording yourself and then having it open to someone else is quite a threatening thing. But again, what you're reinforcing is that in itself is, if not the gold standard, it's close to the gold standard of improving practice. When we think now about MIDI, what is it that MIDI looks at that we can be interested in, and individuals who are interested in motivation can be interested in what's different between MIDI and MISC now? What's specific about MIDI? What's really specific about the MIDI and the versions of the MIDI that have come along is that it has gotten modified and changed based on the current thinking and research and what we know is important. So it has developed over time. It has sort of grown out of the MISC, but it is developed over time. And I would say that one thing specific about the MIDI is that it really is useful. It is good for treatment fidelity, but it really is useful for understanding, for people that are practicing to understand more deeply what it is that they're aiming for when they're doing motivational interviewing and they're learning about the concepts really a lot more deeply about what they mean. What does it mean to cultivate change talk? You know, the notion of change talk, which was a different, we used different words early on. It was self-motivational statements, but that notion that you wanted to build motivation has been there forever. But when you look at what you're trying to measure, then it can really help guide people's journey in learning how to do that and learning about the different ways that it might sound or how they could do it. You know, the training research does point to having objective feedback and people listening to or sitting in on or whatever it is and listening to real work and giving feedback is the way and coaching is the way that you actually get a big skill leap. And we know that it takes it takes that to maintain and grow skills over time, that that's the primary way that people can do that. I got to say, I have taught the mighty in some form or the other to my social work students, my master of social work students. I get them getting in there. And even if they don't, they're never coders. I get them to learn about the concepts more deeply and to learn how to reflect on their own work, on what they're noticing. So to take a deeper dive, it gives a structure It gives a structure for people to take a deeper dive on their own practice, which, of course, as an educator, that is a primary goal of mine is that people can become better evaluators of their own practice. Because like you said, it's really intimidating to record and then you you send it off and somebody else, it's just the whole thing is fraught. So I kind of like want just start recording and listening to it like 
getting over that anxiety, really learning to to look realistically at your own practice. And it, it's interesting because people don't they don't see themselves in the same way. I had a TNT applicant the other day that I was coding and their reflection was just like, oh, I just did horrible. I know I won't get in kind of thing. And the coder came back and said, this was excellent. The mismatch between what people's, their perception of themselves, the reverse is also true. I've had them where the person says, hey, I nailed this. And the coding says, not so much. And so the practice of it, the practice of learning it is really helpful to that, to learning those concepts deeper. And so I would actually throw it back to you, Glenn, because you happen to be taking my, what is my final mighty course I'm teaching. You're taking that. And what are you hoping that it will help you with? Well, you're, you're right. It is fortuitous that this session has coincided with my application to attend mighty and my application preceded us approaching you, which, and so I'm delighted to, to, to have, as we said before we came on air, to have seen you twice in the same week. What really invited me to do it, I, I did Mighty training many years ago. Jen Knapp came over to Derry and she did some training with us. And I suppose in the years that have gone past, I do a lot of training and have my own clients. I've been using a very old version of Mighty when I'm, when I'm supporting advanced practitioners with their training. And I thought, you know what, then it's time for me to refresh. Time for me to go back and just reconnect with this really important way of understanding the nuts and bolts of motivational interviewing. And mm-hmm. I'm more particularly what the way you're describing it is, is what is it we're trying to achieve and how do you pay attention to those? And I've done one class and I was at one coding practice on Saturday. And I said to Seb before I went on that course, I read the manual and immediately knew that I began to practice differently just by reading the manual because it mm-hmm. helped me, again, as you're describing it, it helped me focus on what are you trying to do here? And here are some of the things that you can pay attention to. And it, one of the things in particular I noticed myself doing was I felt like I was being given more space about having an opinion on what was going on, but it was how that opinion was framed and how it was mm-hmm. how it was delivered in an MI consistent way with the one-day training I've come away really recognizing change talk and sustained talk are really, really important to pay attention to consciously. Mm-hmm. And then just the beginning of it's when you hear the change talk, the conscious decision to encourage more of it. And then that lovely movement away, that softening of change talk in our weekend practice, we coded a tape where the practitioner scored very, very low on the other three globals and scored four on soft and sustained talk. There was a lot of debate, and the question was, how did he score that? And essentially what it was, was by simply ignoring sustained talk, he got a good score. Even realizing that, it's being the conscious of, at the minute, the globals, because that's what we're looking at. And it's about how to be those things in a more conscious and deliberate way, because we know from the research, these are the things that make change more possible. That was my initial interest in Going back to do the mighty. Now I have ideas of how I'm going to use it when I complete the training in relation to offering teaching to people, how I frame my teaching slightly differently. And even your description of when you're working with people who are just starting out in the journey, that idea of giving them some idea of what coding might look like and just say, look, take that away and record yourself and use this in some way just to inform your own thinking so that you're not having to send me tapes initially. Yeah. So it's reflective practice, but informed 
yes. within a frame. And I think that's quite exciting as well. It's interesting that you're mentioning the um, sustain talk, the softening sustain talk. So that's kind of an interesting journey in the development of the Mighty because when we were doing the Mighty 4, which is the version that's out there now, we were just about ready to launch it. And MI3, the, the motivational interviewing book version three had just come out and we were just getting ready months away from putting out the Mighty 4. The meta-analysis came through about the importance of sustained talk. Sustained talk, having allowing sustained talk to just keep building is really associated with poorer outcomes. And it has a more direct effect on the outcome than does change talk in many situations. And so we scrambled. We're like, well, we can't ignore that, even though it's not in motivational interviewing three, we can't ignore that. We have to do something. And so the softening sustained talk measure was developed. And I will say that it is very problematic. It will need revision. It's not very reliable in terms of getting people to agree. And just what you mentioned, Glenn, the discussions that happen are what's important about it. It will be changed over time. It will be refined over time. But That concept of what you do with sustained talk and how you manage it in the session has become pivotal in my teaching and my training. It's like that whole idea that you don't just want to let the sustained talk run amok. You want to contain it and you want to minimize it. You don't want to ignore it, but you want to minimize it and not let it take over the session. And it's so easy for that to happen because people in service of empathy think they have to just get a big old deep old understanding of that problem. And they can, as we coded the one in the training, it can easily happen that way where you just dig a hole. So the idea of Even if we don't have a perfect measurement for it yet, and it will need further development because measurement development takes time. But the concept of softening sustained talk has really shifted. I know it shifted my training and my teaching a lot. I think there are probably five different directions I could go in right now. And but I think where I will go next with this question is thinking about listeners who aren't members of our network called the Mint who aren't researchers who might be familiar or actually using the mighty, right? So if, if I'm a clinician out there and I'm listening to this episode and hearing about a way to enhance my practice through reflective feedback, as you framed it that way, Glenn, now we're talking about the mighty and globals. And what are we talking about here for someone who has no idea what the mighty is? Like even just the nuts and bolts, like what would I be coding? How long would this be those kinds of things that for someone who doesn't know. The initial coding that I typically start people with is to just code their reflective listening and their questions and their reflections to pay attention to what kind of questions they ask and to pay attention to the what kinds of reflections and how they might deepen it. Because in reality, the I mean, at least my perspective is that the deepening of reflective listening, which I, I consider to be a lifelong journey, but the focus on being able to listen is critical and essential and anybody moving into any field or anywhere where you're trying to help people through that interaction, the listening is the most important thing. So paying attention to the the listening is really important. The other thing that I would say is the shift in paying attention to the language that the client is using. Learning to recognize language 
that is moving in the direction of change and recognizing how important that is when we oftentimes as practitioners coming in, when we don't know, we come in with the mindset of we want to fix this situation or we want to be helpful, that we oftentimes inadvertently focus the conversation so much on, okay, I got to figure out what this problem is so I can come up with the solution I can really help. And that movement in that direction. So being able to listen in your own practice, like what is the language that my clients are using and how am I influencing that? You know, it takes time. It's hard to do. You can't focus on everything in any one session, but you know, you can focus on pick one thing of practicing during a meeting with the client. And part of it is just being intentional about it. I'm going to practice my reflective listening. And I'm going to make sure I get some reflections in here in this conversation, starting with that, with something small like that. Yeah. So maintaining even the spirit of MA and how you're encouraging people to practice. Let's take it easy. Let's make this possible. Where would you like to begin? Start there and do that one thing and see how you get on. And if you want, here's something for you to use to support you if you decide to record it. Just give yourself texts and see how many you're doing. So you've got a record that then invites you to think about, how was that? How could I improve that? What did I do well? What did I notice the client do when I did this? And it's just that, again, back to that place where you're describing, just being, just be curious to be informed and to be that motivation interviewing is on it's still on its own journey of discovery. The coding systems that you've invented are still on their mm-hmm. journey of discovery. You as a practitioner have described reflective listening as a as a journey of discovery, a lifetime journey of discovery. And it sounds like that in itself could be very supportive for people who are starting a journey or are on their own journey to go, hey, take it easy. We're all on the same journey and we're just at different points, but we're all in this place exploring and understanding and discovering because we're all coming from the same places. How can we be helpful? And, yeah. and it sounds like what you're inviting to do is how can you be helpful to yourself as you learn to be helpful towards other people? Yeah, I mean, that whole notion of uh, being uh, compassionate with yourself about the journey and listening, you you really can make improvements in your own practice, but not if you're just beating yourself up about it. The Jen Manual and I put out a book this earlier came out, I guess the end of last year, on deliberate practice in motivational interviewing. In the thinking about putting that book together, it was really breaking down those things to pieces so that people could practice and and get in there and really practice one thing, not try to tackle the whole thing at once, but to build the skills one at a time. And, you know, Bill Miller talks about you can work your practice your way into the spirit by just practicing some of those things. Like you can build your capacity for the spirit of motivational interviewing by practicing some of those skills, particularly the reflections. I feel like that kind of answers a question that some people might have, which is, do you either have it or you don't, right? Can you really learn something like empathy, which maybe feels more like a personality trait than a skill? And it seems like your comments there, Denise, certainly imply that maybe not for everyone, but that you are able to grow not just the skill of reflective listening, but, you know, beyond that, just the experience of empathy that another person would feel and receive. That's something that people can learn as well. Again, this is a question that we may have been hinting at or talking about already somewhat, but we were curious to hear your thoughts on what have we learned about MI because of all the coding work that you and your colleagues have done 
either with the mighty or the mask, like some, some big lessons perhaps as a related question, better to ask them two together than separate. Our friend and colleague Stan Steindl responded to our uh, post, our Twitter post about meeting with you today. And, and he asked the question, do we know the best bang for your buck? You know, what's an MI skill that seems to be the most impactful when it comes to clinical outcomes. So what have we learned about MI, broadly speaking, through the coding work that you've done? Is there something that we can say is like maybe the most important thing from a practitioner standpoint? It's hard to tease that out from different perspectives, sort of like, what have we learned as a researcher? What have we learned as a practitioner? What, <laughs> what have I learned as a trainer? But I would say that the focus on empathy, which you know, the overlap between the high quality reflective listening and empathy, they really overlap a lot in terms of even the the measurement. I mean, you can't get really high scores in empathy without having good, solid, deep reflective listening. You know, you can kind of muddle your way through and get you know, average scores or whatever that can happen, but they're not the same. There's other ways of expressing empathy. The role of empathy in clinical outcomes has a long history, a very long history. And I I think all of our work that we've done in motivational interviewing has has also contributed to that. Like, yes, it's important, regardless of whatever else is going on, the importance of empathy and the importance of the reflective listening in terms of influencing the conversations and the outcomes is important. I think that part has continued to grow in terms of the importance. The other thing, though, I think is that is important that is more unique to motivational interviewing is the focus on the client language. And it is through the coding that we came to that we were able to get the findings about, I mean, all the studies that were used in the meta-analysis about what happens with sustained talk, all of those were coded. That the the code, they were miscoded, but it has been the coding that has really helped shape what we know it facilitates the not only the in session language that is impacts the outcome even over a long period of time i mean it's like that the process research that comes from coding has really driven a lot of our understanding about what's important to teach in motivational interviewing and for example the whole focus on Client language is also something that, you know, in my courses now I introduce right up front, you know, right at the get go. I don't wait until I used to wait until the, you know, the second day where I'd say, okay, now you've got the empathy down. Now we're going to go for the change talk. All of that information about what is important or the context under which certain skills lead to certain outcomes or how we actually influence the client's language or what value our questions have and what they what they don't, what kind of questions lead down the wrong path. All of those things came out of the coding research. It's all been about the coding. Not so much the mighty coding, because you need a lot more fine-tuned, detailed work to get some of that process research, but and you need to code the client language. It really has informed. And actually, there's been more process research done in motivational interviewing than any other that I'm aware of, any other kind of clinical method like this, that we know a lot more about what skills are important. We don't know them all, but we know a lot about what is important, what really helps people move. Mm. And again, for most people who are listening to this, most people who are practitioners, that's the thing that they're most interested in is 
how can I be helpful? Or how can I improve? I'm being helpful because that's what I'm here to do. And again, that just that emphasis that you're describing, which is helping people recognize it's the client language in a session that we now know is directly correlated to what happens outside of the room and not just immediately, but long term. Yeah. And that the more change talk that's happening, the more likely that months later that their behavior has changed and it's been sustained and has been maintained. Whereas the sustained talk, which in the class you've described is that inclination to hug the problem, which is that because there's a problem, let's dig into that. But what you're saying is the more we dig into the problem, the more likely we are to be influencing the client not changing because mm-hmm. that's what they're hearing themselves talk about is why they can't change, why this is a problem. And it's almost like making it, bring it down on the cellular level. Whereas if they talk yep. about how to do it differently and what resources they have in response to the problems that they, they're currently living with, that that also then changes their own experience of themselves, increases efficacy, increases belief in the possibility that then manifests in what they do next outside of the room. That in itself is a point that we could spend a lot of time exploring. And I think that's what, what trainings do, is just take that point and look at it in, in more depth. For the purposes of, of today, what I'd like to do is just slightly shift it to think about something that, that we were thinking about in advance is that we know that coding is very often done with audio, but I'm also aware that sometimes coders <coughs> are using transcripts of mm. conversations. And just being curious, is there any evidence that there's a difference in the codes that people provide for an audio as compared to a transcript? I don't think we have any hard evidence. Mm. It's more anecdotal, but the, it was really important in the development of the mighty that we actually in the MISC too, but that we rely only on audio, right. but that you have to have the audio. And I've had plenty of people come to me and say, I want to code and I don't have, it's all written. I don't have the audio. And I'm like, well, you're limited. You, there's a lot you can get from just a transcript, but there you miss so much when you don't have the, the interaction. You don't know the pacing. You don't know the tone, any of those things. And so, you know, we've taken a pretty firm stance about you can't really reliably use the mighty without having the audio. That said, when you're learning either coding or you're learning about your own practice, it is really helpful to transcribe and have the transcript also. I mean, that is, I have my students transcribe their session. There's nothing better than having them have to get in there. They really learn a lot about their own practice by transcribing. And you can also, it slows it down where you can look at the process easier. You know, when you're just listening, that's one way of taking it in. But when you can look at it and you can look at the flow back and forth, it's a different way of learning about it. So there are definitely things that you can learn from the transcript. But even even you think about simple things like whether or not something is a reflection or a question. And very often transcription services on Zoom or anything, any other way of transcribing, they will transcribe something as a put a question mark at the end, even if it's not there. Like you really have to pay attention to those kind of things. And we know that it's really important for people learning to learn how to not use intonation at the end of it, not turn it into a question at the end. It's really hard to get that from a transcript, whether or not there was what kind of intonation there was. 
you know, and that, I mean, of course, that's a matter for debate. There are many places around the world where they're having that debate about does it matter? Does the intonation matter? We believe that it does matter. So you really have to hear it in order to determine if it's there. And actually along those lines, again, for people that are really new to this, like, could you give maybe an example of a reflection that gets maybe turned into a question with intonation? Obviously, people are listening to this in multiple countries. Maybe maybe their language is a bit different than English. Oh, like yeah. What are you talking the, about there? The language issues are different. But the just something as simple as like reflection might be, you're really angry with your mother or you're really angry with your mother. So the, it the it question, has a whole different feel. So the, que- <laughs> the question is the, the voice going up at the end mm-hmm. and the reflections, yeah. the voice stays down. And that, that in yeah, itself is, 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 is a lovely, lovely invitation to, for people to pay attention to. That in itself may something, be something to guide someone in their next few sessions. Just, just listen. What's your voice doing at the, at the end of, of a statement? Yeah, and listen. And also what I've found with my students is that that what is the reason you're, you know, like they're learning reflective listening, right? But what is the reason why you turn it up? And that learning to understand like your tendency, like you feel like you're telling somebody how they feel or that you're putting words in their mouth or that if you don't turn it up or they're not very confident, they don't feel confident in the reflection that they're giving. I mean, they feel, and there are other ways of conveying those kinds of things as well about whether or not it's tentative, like, you know, you can convey that too, but for people to understand why, what it is that's driving them to do that. Sometimes it might just be a language issue, that that's a natural thing that happens in the language. Other people, it's more likely, particularly in English, it's more likely to be that they're anxious about offering that. And so from my perspective, thinking them thinking about what is what is the meaning of a reflection, you're not looking to be right. You're looking to offer a possibility based on what you're hearing, what you're seeing, what's going on, and you're offering a possibility, but you're not hooked on it being right. It's just an offering. Mm. And then the person can go, hmm. Yeah, that's right. Or no, you know, really, it's kind of like this. And either one of those is helpful. Mm. It's like the motivation behind the reflection is also a really important thing for practitioners to be thinking about. And they can pick it up. If you listen to yourself, if you listen to yourself after you're recording and you're in a different, you know, now you're not in the immediacy of the situation where you're having to respond, you can stop it and pause and go, wow, what was happening for me when I did that? Hmm, that's interesting. And be curious about that. Yeah, kind of stepping back from the nuts and bolts of a reflection, it's what's the purpose or intent in making a reflection in the first place. There's two other things now that I'm thinking about it. I'm I'm kind of getting in the weeds a little bit myself and codes (laughs) and this skill and that skill. And in thinking about the ways that I, what I teach when I'm teaching and training, one is an open versus closed question. So just interested to hear your thoughts on that because I did my mighty training maybe six or seven years ago with you, Denise, in, uh, in yes. Worcester, Massachusetts, <laughs> way back in the day. But I can't recall. I feel like there was a shift in the coding of questions. The other thing is the distinction between an affirmation and a praise statement like good job or I'm proud of you. 
And just wondering what your coding background has to say about those two, the open versus closed question and affirmation versus praise. Well, the first one about the questions is that, you know, in earlier versions, all earlier versions of the Mighty and the MISC, we, we differentiated between open and closed questions. And what I can say is that, you know, we were able to get relatively good reliability on that. Not total, but relatively good. And there's no, nothing in the process research that indicated that the difference between an open and closed question made any difference to the outcome. When we were doing the Mighty Four and we wanted to add codes like the affirmation, we wanted to add some things in, we made the decision to not to drop the distinction because there was no evidence to support its importance of the open and closed questions. So what I can say about it is that a lot of people still do it because it's important. It can be important part of their training practice is helping people learn how to open up their questions. And what I can also say is that during that time when we were looking at it, we started trying to differentiate between basically closed questions and it was some version of fact-finding questions, which can be open or closed, but those, we wanted to try to differentiate those from a good open evocative question. And we worked on it for over a year and could not get something that we could reliably get agreement on. So we ended up just going with the questions, period. The process research is really starting to show and is coming out that it's it's not the differentiation between whether or not it's open or closed. It's what the question is asking for. And so I think that what is going to, what we will probably see as the development in the next round is some way of identifying good MI type evocative questions and less good. I think there will be some differentiation there. So, for example, a question like, well, gee, you know, what is it that makes you want to quit smoking now? Why are you thinking about it? Is a really good question that encourages change talk, encourages the person to think about change. Whereas, well, how come you haven't stopped yet? Which is another open question, but is really focused on the barriers or why on the sustain talk. Mm. So the difference that they're finding in the process research is that if you ask for sustain talk, you get more of it. It just keeps going. If you ask for change talk, the same thing happens. It just keeps going mm. and you have to really switch it around. So it's, it's, not that you would never ask for sustained talk, but being really careful about and intentional about how you ask, what, what you're asking for in your questions. So that's the thing about the questions. The other thing is, is that I, I'm pretty sure that in the next round of the Mighty, we will take advantage of the work that Bill and Terry did in their book, Effective Psychotherapy, uh, a psychotherapist on affirmations. So there's new on simple and complex affirmations. I'm pretty sure we'll probably move in that direction. Although, you know, it'll take some development to get that nailed down. But when we were looking at the development of the Mighty Four in terms of affirmation, we wanted to have it be something substantial, like to meet the bar for being an affirmation. We wanted it to be something substantial and not about the person, not just like, oh, you know, good job. Well, you did a good job. The thing is, is that sometimes it's really hard to tease that out. And in earlier versions, 
oh, you did a great job, or I'm really proud of you, or all those would get counted as an affirmation. And sometimes they're really valuable. And that's where the simple and complex comes in that that they talk about. You know, sometimes it's really important to say, I am so proud of you and all the work you have done in this effort. You know, that can be really a helpful affirmation. But we wanted to try and and tease out to to have it be more substantial, you know, because people, I mean, and learning and well, actually, since we put in the the stronger definition from affirmation, and it's actually stronger than is in the MI3 book, because we also quit counting support statements like or what people call validation of their oh, you know, you're feeling real, you know, that's a really difficult, you're having a hard time, you know, oh, this is something that people really struggle with, or those kinds of things that are supportive and can be helpful, but they're not affirmations from the way that we're defining an affirmation. And what I will say is that since we did that in the mighty, we have seen over the years a substantial increase in the number of affirmations that come through. As you know, I manage the TNT application, the coding and standardized patient interview process for the TNT application, training for new trainers that we do every year. And people have to submit that we we offer them a, um, a particular kind of standardized patient interview, and then we code them and they have to pass the coding in order to, to get accepted. And what I can see is over the years, because people are using this kind of tool and they are training people in how to do affirmations. We have actually seen the number of affirmations really increase. Good affirmations. People are still doing this, this rather simple ones that don't get counted there. Like, you know, oh, good job, good job. There's still people that do that. But the learning about what is really considered a good affirmation can be really helpful for people to shape that because it's like cheap. I think in uh, Bill and Terry's book, they say, you know, they're just cheap. They just, they don't cost you anything. They're like, you know, to, to say, oh, good job. Oh, good job. Whereas a really good, deep, meaningful affirmation takes effort mm. and you have to really have listened to the person and you have to really have paid attention to the strengths and the effort that they've put out. You have to really, you have to work. Yes, yeah, so there's more, so much about mindset. And which takes us back to the spirit or the heart set, as Steve described it. But just in that last point around affirmations, it reminds me of the one of the episodes we had previously with Tim Abadaka, who really said, look, if you were to open your toolbox and pick out the single most powerful tool, it's an affirmation. And it sounds like what you're saying is, look, there's ways of making it really meaningful that you have got to be paying attention. You've got to have stepped into this client's world. You've got to recognize their global experience for the, you to be able to offer them a genuine recognition of the effort, the skills, the talents, the resources that they're doing. Even when they're talking about a, a problematic behavior, you can mm-hmm. still offer a beautiful, authentic affirmation. And when you were talking about the questions and the impacts, it came to me the, the philosophical statement: "The seeker finds what the seeker seeks." So if you're going yeah, looking for, right. if you're going looking for <laughs> problems, guess what you find? If you invite people to talk about problems, that's what they'll talk about, and we know that that hinders their growth. But if you invite them to talk about possibilities and opportunities and ex- positive experiences of the past, that that has the opposite effect, which in- encourages and supports. And just another point: when I've been coding until now, we've started this training. I have been coding using open and closed. And very often mm-hmm. when I'm giving feedback, what I've noticed is, is that when people are using closed questions, it's almost like the question is a verification of something they already think. And part of what I've been exploring is 
if you have an understanding of what the answer to this question is, be might that be in itself a seed for your reflection? Yeah. Could you turn these closed questions into reflections so that there's more flow and more of an empathic conversation taking place? And more often than not, the students can can recognize and it's just shifting away from that. I have to, I'm not sure back to that self-efficacy experience they're having, yeah. which is I'm not sure or they're going to think I'm going to impose my opinion on them. And it's just, okay, so how can you gently experiment with your own understanding, which is what empathy is, is sharing your understanding of their experience. And you're not trying to be yeah. right, but you can't be wrong. But yeah. what's an example of that? Let me think of a close question that people have. Do you often do that? Does that work for you? So it's just a case of going, well, I think they're going to say yes or no. So the potential, a simple reflection. So it sounds like this is something you do quite often, or it sounds like you put an awful lot of effort into this and you're trying to make changes. And it's hard for you and you're working to change it. It's just translating back to your point. Denise says, what's the purpose of this question? Mm-hmm. And is it to draw out information or is it to clarify something you're already thinking? Okay, so if it's about clarifying something you're already thinking, why not share that? Why not enter in that reciprocal relationship where you're being authentic and this is your current understanding and that that you're both being curious about this place that you're witnessing while you're with the client? You're not trying to be the expert. You're not trying to be one step ahead of them. You're noticing something going, oh, what's happening here? And you're going, what's happening here? This is really difficult for them. And you're going, this is really hard. You're, and no, you're trying to make this different. And at the same time, you've been pulled in a couple of different directions. Do you know why you're doing this? Or do you want to do this differently? Or would it be better if you did that differently? So just translating those into why am I asking this question? It's because I think this, okay, reflectively listen. It's also, I talk about it as the shift between a questioning mindset and a reflective mindset. Mm. Like the questioning that comes so often from that need to figure out what the problem is so you can fix it or so you can figure out what your best intervention is or you figure out what you need to do. You know, like your job is to be this mirror in a particular direction. Your job is to, you know, reflect back on the strength and the hope and the joy and the goals and the values of the person, what they're giving you and trusting that they will give you everything you need. But that mindset of being able to let go of like, I've got to be the one to figure it out. I've got to get this just right. But it takes a lot of practice to move, to shift from, I'm here at your service and I'm here to help you discover, you know, or create what you need to move forward. I can help you with that. It's a really different way of being with the person. It's sort of like that reflection and empathy is both a way of being and a way of doing. So there's actively things you can do that we can measure like reflective listening. And there's a way of being reflective, a way of being with the person that gets you out of the questioning mode. Yeah, which is, as we all know, and as our listeners might know, that is a challenge very often in healthcare training. It's a questioning mode that people learn and learn very well. They become really good at extracting information. And this can be quite a shift for people to kind of go from that questioning mindset to a more reflective one, as you're describing that, Denise. Also, Denise, you mentioned this book by uh, Bill Miller and Terry Moyers, Effective Psychotherapists. So if people want to hear more about that, they joined us on episode 45. So listen back into our archives. I guess we have enough episodes now to Glenn to be able to call it an archive. That's pretty cool. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And so 
again about shifting. We might be at our at a time to begin to shift to a closing of our conversation, which has been wonderful. As I believe you know, we often ask our guests to look ahead a little bit at their professional or personal lives to share something. It actually has struck me, though, that you've offered us some looking ahead in terms of the evolution of the mighty and thinking about this affirmation, praise, distinction, and maybe simple and complex affirmations or the softening, sustained talk, global score, and how that was new from Mighty Four and how you're anticipating that that would continue to evolve with more research. So we'd love to hear more about what you're looking ahead for yourself. But if you had other nuggets to share about where the mighty might go, I'm sure people would love to hear that as well. Well, they're, they're kind of uh, tied together in some ways because we've been a team that's worked on the mighty for the last versions, the last couple versions. And what I can say is that it'll take a team to do it. And, you know, we have conversations about doing that and moving in the next direction. I can't speak for Terry because I think she's kind of debating about whether or not she's got another version in her or not. But I do know that Jen Manuel will probably be the one taking the lead going forward. She may not know it yet, but <laughs> I think that'll happen. Um, she does now. And yeah, right. Because what I can say about myself is I really have had a real change of heart. I've been doing this work for a long time and have absolutely loved it. It's been wonderful for me. I feel like I've had such a blessed career. I can't believe that I've been able to do the work that I love for this many years and that it's supported me and that I've been a part of such a incredibly creative and wonderful group. It just doesn't get any better, but it's time for me to move on. And I am in the process of retiring and I'm not going to take on things like the coding research, the further development of it. And it's time to turn it over and allow newer people to come in and do it. And there are lots of people, well, like Jen, <laughs> there, but there are lots of people out there that are poised and ready and now have the experience and the knowledge to step in and get involved in that work. I mean, I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of people in that situation that are that are ready, that are at the point in their career and their time when they can put the energy towards that. And I am happy to move it on because if it's going to continue to grow and develop as it has, it needs to include people coming up, not just us. I'm not going to say us old fogies, but, you know, not just the originals. I really am looking forward to letting go of this and passing it on into very capable hands. Mm. A real moment of transition for you in your own life, having spent years supporting other people explore and understand change. And at this point in your own life where, and it sounds like it's, there's, there's something heartening for you to know that there are good people to continue this, to share that love. And I know that anybody who has met you along this journey will have seen you as a beacon of support and of kindness and encouraging for understanding and practice of MI. So it's a real honor for us that you have agreed to come on here and share this with us. And I guess just on behalf of everybody who has met you along the journey to wish you every success and happiness in your retirement. And thank you for everything that you've done for us as MI practitioners and trainers and researchers. Thank you. Thank you. That that warms my heart. Is ha- I'm happy to be here. And you both are part of the uh, people that uh, are there ready to take up the mantle. And I'm thrilled about that. Thank you for that. Thank you.
It's simply a case of saying, look, if people want to contact you then, and imagine them given the fact that you're making this decision to transition, is it okay for people to reach out if they have questions for you, Denise? Is it okay for them to contact you? And if it is, how would they go about doing that? It is okay for people to contact me. I may pass it on if you do, because that's part of what I'm really practicing is passing them on when it's time to pass them on. Email is probably the best way to contact me. And I guess you could go to deniseernst.com. There's a contact function on there. Yeah. And and the (laughs) actual link link will be in the blurb as well. So deniseernst.com. Yeah. Excellent. And certainly if people want to contact myself or Seb or offer feedback or have questions for future episodes, the different ways they can do that is on our Twitter. It's at Change Talk. On Instagram, it's Talking to Change Podcast. Facebook is Talking to Change. And for emails, it's podcast.glenhines.com. Great. Denise, absolutely. We thank you not just for joining us, but we thank you for all your contributions to this approach that we love and uh, feel so strongly about. And so thank you for all of it, Denise, truly. Been my pleasure. Thanks.